as we think about the eternal perspective and heaven. I invite you to take your Bible, turn over to Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, back there in the Minor Prophets. As we think about eternity and what heaven's going to be like and talk also about hell as well. May we get an eternal perspective in our lives. Hosea chapter 4, verse 5. Hosea chapter 4, verse 5. The writer says, You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Part of the reason I preach through this uh, series of living with an eternal perspective and our focus this year is on kingdom focus is that um, I'm distressed at how easily and quickly people who've been faithful to God for years are leaving the faith behind to follow the philosophies of this world. And it breaks my heart. I've met with a couple pastor friends here in the Quad Cities that have uh, taken the slippery slope away from Orthodox Christianity. Uh, one is a dear friend that we meet and talk, but they're walking away from what the Word of God teaches, and they're buying into the culture that's around us. I think first, one of the reasons people do that is they stop studying and digging deep into God's word. That's why Hosea chapter 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. We have the full revelation of God, and it's withstood all the test of time for over 2,000 years. And we can't improve upon it because it's timeless. And so we have to go into the word of God to deal with the cultural issues that we face and filter through those things. Many of my friends are projecting their feelings on a false idea of who God is. And second, many believers are seeking the favor of man over the favor of God. Now, I realize Pontius Pilate, in the sovereignty of God, that whole event had to occur where he uh, decided whether to send Barabbas, release Barabbas, or send Jesus to the cross. And from God's perspective, that had to happen. But from a human perspective, Pontius Pilate he had a choice to make. Do I please man? Do I crucify an innocent person, Jesus Christ, or do I release this prisoner? And so, of course, he caved in and followed what the crowd and the religious leaders desired. So-called progressive Christians tend to be pluralistic regarding salvation. They're open to uh, people coming to faith in other ways than directly through Christ. Some progressive Christians uh, talk about their uh, they're pluralistic when they're talking about sexually active as single persons, supportive of alternative sexualities, comfortable with gender fluidity in favor of same-sex marriage and pro-choice. We see people using this term now, deconstructing their faith and becoming skeptics because they haven't really dug into God and his word or see great resources to help them with their questions of cynicism and skepticism that they have to balance out what a biblical worldview is. Now, I admit that some of the issues I stated a moment ago, gender fluidity and uh, critical race theory and these things that we're facing, 
Too many times as Christians, we give the simple Sunday school answers, but they are complex and they need to be dug into. But we're called, as the early church was, to wrestle with these philosophies and search out scripture to determine what you should believe and how to communicate your beliefs in an articulate way out in the marketplace. That's why we have to guard against being so earthly-minded that we are not of earthly, of heavenly good. And so we're going to take a moment to review the message from two weeks ago. We're going to dive into today's message on what heaven and hell is like right now for a believer or an unbeliever who will pass from this life today. And next week, we're going to look at uh, the eternal perspective, what heaven and hell will be like in eternity. And it's an amazingly bright future for us as believers that we have to look forward to. Now, two weeks ago, you might remember I showed you a video, Francis Chan, and he had that long rope tied to a rock, and he had a little red tape at one end, and he talked about how that little red tape represented our time here on earth, and then the long rope represented eternity. And to think about and to drive home in that illustration, how do we live with, in light of eternity that we're facing? We talked about why heaven is important to us today. We said your understanding of heaven continually reminds you of just how brief or short our life is. Our understanding of heaven makes you aware of your appointed day of judgment. There's going to be a day where we will have a funeral on my behalf, your behalf, unless Jesus comes back and raptures us out first. Your decision as to where you will spend eternity depends on your perspective of heaven. Your fellowship with the heavenly Father depends upon how you view heaven from the Bible's perspective. Your priorities and how you live your life today depends on it, how you spend your money, where you invest your time, uh, what you do with your time as far as uh, entertainment versus uh, how to balance that out with serving the Lord. Your understanding of heaven brings suffering into perspective, which is such a big question in our culture today. How can a loving God allow people go through difficult times or innocent people uh, be hurt or even killed. Your reward in heaven depends on it, and your sharing with others about the hope of heaven through the gospel depends on other people's opportunity to receive Christ. So I hope you have your sermon notes. Let's look today at today's message, Living with an Eternal Perspective, Part 2. And the first thing you see, where do people go when they die today before the rapture? Now, we're just going to look at some simple truths today, nothing profound, but I hope that you can um, kind of grasp the timeline. We laid out a timeline two weeks ago and handed out a, a timeline of God's uh, history coming up in, in the future. But where do people go when they die today before the rapture? Well, in the dead of the Minnesota winter, which many of you have either been to Minnesota or know how cold it gets even here, husband and wife decide to head off to Key West, Florida to enjoy some warmth down there. And the husband had to go a day ahead of the wife because she had some responsibilities to take care of. So when the husband arrived at his hotel in Key West, Florida, and he unpacked and he got ready to go to the beach, in his haste, he sent a really short email out, but he accidentally sent it to the wrong address. Well, meanwhile, there was a minister's wife in Chicago, and she had just uh, literally come home from her husband's funeral. He had died unexpectedly, and she was still numb and reeling from the pain of all this. And so she decided she would turn on her computer and look at her email, maybe to get some uh, condolences, something to soothe her spirit. Uh, 
And when she read this email, she fainted, passed out, and fell on the floor. And her daughter came in and revived her. And her daughter read this. And you can see this on the screen. Darling wife, I'm sure you're surprised to hear from me. I've just arrived and checked in, and I wanted to send you a quick note saying I can't wait until you get here. The staff has everything ready for you. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. And if everything goes as planned, you should get here as quickly as I did. P.S. It sure is hot down here. I know you're going to love it. As we think about that humorous mistake, it drives home, though, the reality of eternity and our mortality. So the next thing on your outline, where do the Old Testament and New Testament believers go when they die today? Well, first of all, they're Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. Take your Bible and turn over to Luke 16. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time in Luke 16. Verse 19, this is Jesus sharing a parabolic story about the rich man and Lazarus. This is probably the most descriptive scripture we have about what hell is about. In Revelation 20, 21, and other places we'll find more about the descriptions of heaven, and we'll look into that next week. But where do Old Testament, New Testament believers go when they die today? First of all, the believer goes to Abraham's bosom, and that's the term used in the King James Version. In the ESV, it says Abraham's side. But theologians refer to it as Abraham's bosom. And so Luke 16, verse 19, if you're there, there was a rich man, Jesus said, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. First of all, the question comes, is this a parable or a story? And the answer is yes, it's a parable and a story. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but what makes this story unique, unlike the other parables that Jesus shared, is he actually used a name, Lazarus, in the story. So people are confused, is this a parable or story? I call it a parabolic story. And so we see Lazarus, the name here, used for the poor man. It means God helps. God helps. And that's interesting as you think about the perspective of the story. For clarity, this is not the same Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. The parabolic story was given to the Pharisees so that they would uh, realize that all they've ever focused on was this life, the here and now, these religious leaders. They were not even talking or even thinking about the afterlife. And so Jesus wants to drive this home. We see the rich man lived a lavish lifestyle and enjoyed the fruits of his labor and riches. And outside the rich man's gate was a poor man who we see was laid there, so he must have been disabled, and he was filled with sores over his body. The rich man had nothing to do with the poor man. He saw his destitute state and did nothing to alleviate the poor man's suffering. In the story, the rich man and the poor man have their lives intertwined and yet they live polar opposite lifestyles. And then the whole thing comes to a conclusion, or, or a transition, I should say. Then they both died. And it's interesting as we see what happens next. In Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. John Don says, death is the great leveler. 
You know, I've done over 100 funerals, and I've yet to see a funeral where the hearse has a U-Haul trailer on the back of it. I've seen people stuff things in caskets, and all that's good for memorabilia. But to be honest, naked come we into this world, and naked we leave it. We can't take anything with us. And so death is the great leveler. Everyone's going to leave in the same way. What can we learn about the afterlife from Jesus' teaching here? In verse 22, we see that Lazarus was helped by God because God the Father sent his angels to carry away Lazarus' soul to what is called Abraham's bosom. We'll talk more about that place in just a few moments. But verse 22, back in Luke 16, the poor man died. He was carried by angels to Abraham's side, but the rich man also died, and he was buried. In verses 23 through 26 of this chapter, we see the rich man's eternal destiny described. In verse 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man did. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The rich man ends up, his soul ends up in Hades. Hades is translated as a place called hell 11 times in the New Testament. Hades or hell is a place of day after day after day torment. This is the dwelling place or the intermediate place of souls who are not believers in Christ when on earth and is their dwelling place until the great white throne judgment that occurs in Revelation chapter 20. The rich man recognized Abraham asked for a drop of water for release from the fiery pain he was in, in verse 24. That word anguish or torment is speaking of hell, and it's seen four other times in the New Testament. Notice it says Abraham's afar off. There's a great chasm between them. That word in the Greek means an, an unbridgeable space, an unbridgeable space, a great distance. And God set up the afterlife so there would be a place for believers and a place for unbelievers. So the image is strong, and it emphasizes the importance of receiving Christ as your Savior in this life. There's no evidence in the Bible that once you die, there's a second chance to receive Christ as Savior. Our place in eternity is solely dependent upon our responding to the gospel in this life. But after our heart stops beating, after we stop breathing, after the last brainwave, we do not have an opportunity to change our decision. The rich man had some requests of Abraham showing his concern for his family future and eternity. One commentator said these would be his prayers from hell. In verse 27 of Luke chapter 16, and the rich man said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And then the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
And Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone would rise from the dead. What's the message of the rich man from hell? Speaking about it, first of all, warn my family. Don't come here. Go and tell my family to repent and turn to faith in Christ. Abraham talks to him about looking into the scriptures, to Moses and the prophets, that through that process you can find how to come to faith in Christ. And then he closes with that statement, that even if something supernatural, even something so miraculous as some, someone coming back from the dead, even then they still would not believe. What's interesting about that statement here in Luke chapter 16 is that the rich man, um, that Jesus a few uh, time later, not very long after, went over to his close friend Lazarus, who is dead in the grave for four days. And in John 11, he brings him out uh, to rise again. And even in that chapter, John 11, John 12, the Pharisees would not believe, even though it was known that he was in the grave four days and rose again, they plotted to kill Lazarus and Jesus. So even when the miraculous occurred, they still would not embrace the truth. One last thing before we leave this story, the rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich, but because his life and hope were wrapped up in seeking wealth and earthly pleasures to the exclusion of eternal preparation for his soul. You see, he put his desires and his passion for life of ease above caring for others. He was not right with God. The poor man, Lazarus, he went to paradise or heaven not because he was poor, but because he was righteous and he depended upon God. If one focuses only on our life here on earth, it will prove to be a foolish mistake when eternity comes our way. A second application, even the most extreme miracles by God will not be enough to cause people to repent of their sin and receive by faith Christ as Savior. Do you realize that they've done a study with historians who are not believers in Christ? And they've come together and these historians came up with 10 undisputable facts to prove that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. And yet, no one can dispute that, but yet they still do not believe in Christ as their Savior. Third, this story negates the doctrines of soul sleep and annihilation for the unbeliever at death. There's some uh, people who believe that uh, the soul, when it dies, will sleep until the resurrection. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when you die and you're not going to heaven, your soul burns up automatically at that moment. But we see in here that that can't be possible. It says the rich man and Lazarus are conscious. They're having a conversation. The rich man feels torment while Lazarus enjoys comfort. It shows us that this is an ongoing, eternal thing. And as we move away from the story, the next blank on your outline there would be paradise. Paradise. Abraham's bosom, another descriptor of where we go before the rapture, would be paradise. And we see that with Jesus, with the thief on the cross. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Another descriptor that's often thought of is the third heaven. The third heaven. We know John on the island of Patmos, as he uh, had a vision, to, and he wrote the book of Revelation. He was transported somewhere. We know Paul 
said this about himself in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man, speaking of himself, in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. He had a vision as well. So from our Lord's description, we learned that Hades, the place of the dead, had two sections, or a paradise portion called Abraham's bosom and a punishment portion. And it's believed by many theologians that our Lord emptied paradise, the part there uh, of, of the, the believers, when he arose from the dead and returned to the Father. We know that today paradise is in heaven where Jesus reigns in glory, according to Warren Wiersbe. So one question that's debated in all this is, do we have a physical body in this intermediate stage that we're in? Uh, the future, which we'll talk about next week, the eternal heaven, what do we do when we pass away as a believer? Or do we just have a spirit in heaven or do we have a body? Well, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, it's a great read, but it's 500 pages long. I encourage you to read it, though, but it's good. Um, but in there, he, he, he takes several chapters talking about, uh, from a biblical perspective, how we probably have a temporary body with our spirit uh, in, in what we know as heaven today, in that intermediate state. And he gives a lot of good reasons why that you see throughout the Bible, never is a believer uh, described as a spirit, but always in a physical body. Well, next week, we'll talk about our glorified bodies from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But another question to look at this morning is this. Where do the unbelievers go when they die today? Where do unbelievers go when they die today? Well, we just unpack that. The place is called Hades. In Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, the story of the rich man. And he was in torment day and night. He was thirsty. He was able at that point, at least in the story, we see he was able to communicate with Abraham, but he was suffering tremendously and he was warning people not to come to this place. But then, of course, the future for the unbeliever is the eternal lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, at the end of the uh, millennial reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign, and when Satan gathers people around them who uh, were born during the millennial age, who had a sinful nature, who wanted to rebel against uh, God, uh, came and brought a rebellion against him. And then Christ denounces the rebellion in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Have you ever had that smell of burning sulfur? It smells like burnt eggs, I think, in many ways. And that's the smell of this place. Folks, hell is a real place with eternal torment and isolation from others and God for all of eternity. And I just want to say that God does not send people to hell. That's one of the prevailing things out in the marketplace is that why would a loving God send anybody to hell? But people choose not to come to God. We're all born sinners. And if we're honest, all of us deserve to be in hell. But because of God's great mercy and his grace, he's willing for us to be able to go to heaven because Jesus Christ died on the cross and bridged the gap and took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness 
as 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about in the great exchange. And we have the ability to go to heaven because we have trusted in that grace and that free gift. And what a privilege it is. It says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He was told about a gravestone inscription that read, here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And Lewis quietly replied, I bet he wishes that were so. C.S. Lewis also said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's just the life of ease, going along with the flow of the culture and living out your passions and desires without very few warnings in this life if you want to go to the pathway of hell. Jesus said, for what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I hope that you think about that and ponder what your answer would be. Howard Hendricks, that great professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said, we are not in the land of the living as Christians on our way to the land of the dying. Instead, we are in the land of the dying on our way to the land of the living. So our application is this. We can rejoice. We can rejoice in our hope of heaven, but we should be compelled to share the gospel with those who need the hope of heaven in Jesus. As we look at hell, as we think about that place, as we think of the warning and the prayer of the man in hell, it should compel us to share with those around us. We believe, I believe everybody deserves at least a hearing of the gospel in their lifetime for them to make their own personal decision. A third question to consider today is this. Where will people go when they die after the millennial reign of Christ? Now remember, if you remember our chart, I could have put it up there, but you know the church age we're in, if you believe that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation or the middle or at the end, um, at some point Jesus is going to take those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ on earth and take them up into heaven. Rapture means a snatching away. General Electric did a study. The twinkling of an eye in 1 Corinthians 15 means 1 63rd of a second. Think about that, how fast that will occur. People will be on airplanes. People will be on transit buses. And some of those drivers who are believers are going to be gone. Wonder what will happen. Wonder what it will be like. It will be an amazing sight. And then the seven-year great tribulation period, Jesus comes back, and then we get the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And so we're talking about after that. What's going to happen after the millennial reign of Christ here on earth? Well, first of all, there will be the eternal heaven. And we'll look at that next week in Revelation chapter 21 and other places. But this is the permanent place of endless joy that Psalm 1610 talks about forever. You want a promise to claim. You want going through times of tribulation and suffering. Look at Psalm 16, 10 through 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or, or the grave, as David said. Sheol means the grave in Hebrew. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think we're going to have a wonderful time traveling around God's wonderful universe as believers. 
and exploring new places that we can't even imagine. But then there is the lake of fire, the sobering truth. The lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. It says in verses 14 and 15, then death and Hades, physical death, and those that before the millennial reign are in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, this is at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, the great white throne judgment where he separates the believers from the non-believers, the sheep from the goats, and he casts them into their final place of torment for eternity. We'll look at detail at those two permanent places next week, but our application here is we can see the joys of being with Christ and the pain of being separated from him. It's not often that we think about hell, so a subject we don't want to think about a lot, but it's a reality, and we need to be confronted with that truth from time to time. The last question we'll consider this morning is, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell? What's the standard? What's the stipulation? What's the dividing line? Who will go to heaven and who will go to hell? Well, when I was youth pastor from 1987 to 1993 in from New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, we supported a missionary. His name was Bud Ayler. And he had this uh, group of, of, of clubs that met in high schools. And it was an organization called High School Born Againers. And Bud Ayler would always come to our church when he was, you know, going to share about what's going on with this badge. It says, born twice, die once, born once, die twice. And I thought, what's that all about? Well, the first thing on your outline there is born twice, die once. What does that mean? Well, he explained to people, it was a great conversation starter, that if you're born physically and you're born again spiritually, you will only die once. You only die a physical death once. But if you're only born once and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're going to die in this life and you're going to die spiritually in the next life as well. So born twice, die once. In John 3, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water representing uh, physical birth in this life. The spirit, the spiritual birth, because our nature was dead. And so born twice, those who are born again, those who come to a place in their life where they realize that they're spiritually dead apart from God, that we're born into this world with a sinful nature, that we are selfish, that left our own devices, we would not choose to follow God. But the Spirit comes and encourages us and someone shares the gospel that Jesus died on the cross. He paid our penalty of sin. He was the substitute on our behalf on that cross. And by receiving him through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can be born again, as it says here. And of course, as we see later on, I believe that Nicodemus did 
uh, become a born-again believer. When we see at the cross, he helped uh, Joseph take him off the cross and uh, help bury him. Then we see born once, die twice, as I alluded to. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, he's talking about the eternal death here. That at the end of life, if you're not a believer, you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And he's going to have this long sheet of all of your sin or my sin. The difference for us as believers is that the blood covers and takes away our sin. But for the non-believer, they're going to stand there and there's going to, God's going to ask for a payment for that sin. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much is in your 401k. It doesn't matter if you have a great line of credit. It doesn't matter all the good works that you've done. It's not going to measure up to what God needs. It's trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And I hope you realize the finality of these places. Again, once you die, there is no changing. There's not a giving of a second chance. God has given us how to avoid hell and gain heaven, but we have to come to him humbly on his terms to avoid hell. So our application here today is we are thankful for God's love. We're thankful for God's mercy. We're thankful for God's grace and his patience toward the humans he creates. I hope you're thankful. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And of course, his unconditional love is given to us. And we said earlier, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter 3.9. So here's the key thought. How does living with an eternal perspective impact your life? How does living with these facts that we've just talked about today and others, how does this impact your decision making? How does this impact your day? How does it impact your conversations with people in your family or work that may not know Christ? Not saying you have to share the gospel every day with those people, but starting spiritual conversations. Asking if you could pray for them. Looking for open doors. People who are receptive. So come back next week as we answer the question about the final state of eternity. What our glorified bodies will be like. And then unique situations that I get asked about a lot of times. Uh, who will get into heaven? Like what does God do with babies and young children who die at a very young age? Do they go to heaven? Is there such a thing as the age of, of accountability? taught in scripture. What about the mentally challenged? Will they go to heaven? What about those who've never heard the gospel? Will they be able to have a way to go to heaven without hearing the name of Jesus or the gospel? And a question my students often ask me throughout the semester at Scott, do those who commit suicide as believers go to hell? We're going to talk about those things next week, and I encourage you to come back for that final chapter of this series, Living with an eternal perspective. In 1 Timothy 1.19, Max Licato puts this in his book, When God Whispers Your Name. It says this, Timothy, my child, Paul speaking, I'm giving you a command that agrees with the prophecies that were given about you in the past. I tell you this so you can follow them and fight the good fight. Continue to have faith and do what you know is right. Some people have rejected this and their faith has been shipwrecked. Max Licato goes on to write, I sit a few feet from a man on death row, Jewish by birth, tent maker by trade, apostle by calling. His days are marked. I'm curious about what bolsters this man as he nears his execution 
So I ask him some questions. Do you have a family, Paul? I have none, he says. What about your health? My body is beaten and tired. Any awards? Not on earth, he says. Then what do you have, Paul? No belongings, no family? What do you have that matters? He says, I have faith. It's all I have, but it's all I need. I have kept the faith. And then he said, Paul leans back against his prison cell and smiles with a contentment on his face. When we think about our eternal perspective, if all you have is Jesus, is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to have, but also to share with others? Here's some questions to ponder this week as we close. What are the things you rejoice about most when you think of heaven? You know, when your going gets tough, when difficult times, when the waves of tribulation just keep seemingly coming at you, we have something that the world does not have. We have a hope beyond the grave. We have a place that we know we're going to be. We know there are loved ones that have gone ahead of us who are believers that we're going to see them. But most importantly, we're going to see that our faith becomes sight and we're going to breathe the air of heaven. Second of all, what is an area of your life that you need to focus on to be eternally minded? Through this message, what has God challenged you with through his Holy Spirit to consider looking at once again to make sure you're totally focused on eternity? And thirdly, how does the fact that some of your loved ones and friends who don't yet know Christ will be separated from God in eternity enhance your prayer life and the sharing of the gospel with them? I don't know about you, but I drive by a lot of people on my way in from Princeton every Sunday. And as I drive in and I drive past those farms and those houses, I pray for those people. I pray for them. Do they know Jesus? Are they going to church today? Are they going to hear the word of God? Are they going to hear the gospel? How are you praying? How are you thinking of those that are around you? Let's bow for prayer. As we pray... I encourage you to look into your heart of hearts. Forget about anyone else who's sitting around you. And maybe you're here today and maybe you're not sure. You're not 100% sure that if you died, you're going to be in heaven today. You know, we're only promised this life or this day in front of us. And then we face eternal life. I would hate to see anyone leave here that doesn't know Christ as Savior if there's anyone here today that needs to make sure of that, just slip your hand up so I can pray for you. No one looking around, but I want to be sure of where I'm going to spend eternity. Anyone at all. Second of all, as Christians, is God prompting you to think about some of your priorities, some of the things that you've been focused on? It may be taking you away from the eternal perspective. And God's challenging you with that today. I just encourage you in the quietness of this moment to allow his spirit to speak to you and that you would take a few moments to deal with that in your way with your spirit with God's as well. Father, today's message was very simple, but it's very profound the parable that Jesus gave us about the rich man and Lazarus. It brings things into perspective. 
as we've buried loved ones over this last year and we've been to funerals of friends, those are the days we're confronted once again, but it seems like after a few days, unless it's our loved one, we walk away and we kind of get back to our routine and we get wrapped up in the things here on earth. Lord, I pray that you help us. Help us to realize today just how important it is, how serious it is uh, to think about where we'll spend eternity. And Lord, may we be able to have opportunities to share with others that's so clear in your word so that they could be born again, that they could have that hope of eternal life, that people are hurting and going through pain to know that there's something greater beyond this, that they can put their hope and their faith in. Help us as we consider our eternal perspectives, Lord, and how we spend our time and our talents and our treasure. So we make sure that it's all balanced out, that we can enjoy the things of this life, that you've placed us here with all the opportunities for pleasure and enjoyment, to enjoy your creation, but Lord, also to point others through those things to the creator, the one who made it all. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.